Our Father, we do ask now as we come as your people to prepare our hearts for your table and to listen to our risen word speak to us from heaven through the written word made alive within us with all of its sanctifying power by you, Holy Spirit, and your ministry that you have committed to us to illumine that word, to use it to renew our minds, to bring to maturity the new man, to increase our hope, and to strengthen our witness of Christ and the reality of his life in us. And we do pray that to that end, you would serve and minister us to us. And it is to that end we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, this morning we'll be looking at verse 8. This whole section, 1 through 11, is one unit of thought, if you will. Easily divided up, however, into two parts. Verses 1 through 6 and then verses 7 through 11. And in verses 7 through 11, he gives us essentially four exhortations based on his statement that the end of all things is near. So based on the shortness of this life, based on the reality of this present heaven and earth coming to an end, these are ways that we are to live. We are to live soberly minded. We are to live with self-control. We are to live with thoughts that rightly discern and evaluate this world that we live in so that we could be faithful and live righteous lives. We are to have self-controlled minds and lives for the purpose of prayer, for the purpose of seeking God, seeking His wisdom, seeking His fellowship, seeking Him in every way so that we might gain wisdom. And this morning, we are going to look at the other fruit of that, of living in light of the end, namely, love, love. Now, love is certainly a huge topic. It's something that's, uh, in some cases, talked about uh, almost exclusively in in terms of defining God and talking about God in much of Christendom. We certainly hear a lot about love. If you like the Hallmark Channel, you just have love all day long, I think 24 hours a day. You can have a kind of love of all these sweet little meetings that always turn out so well. And there is a kind of love that's reflected in that that's not not in and of itself wrong, even if it is a bit shallow and superficial. Uh, It's not necessarily wrong. There is that kind of love that uh, is reflected in romantic love and relationships. There's love of friendships. There's all kinds of love that we have evident in our world. And in the church, love is central to our identity. Uh, Sadly, too often, it rarely rises above Hallmark Channel level of love to mere sentimentality. And, of course, we're aware of that. We reflect the love of the world in its uh, weakest portrayal uh, far too often rather than the deep and profound love that Peter is going to call us to this morning in 1 Peter 4, that love that reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love certainly has a sentimental element to it. It has an element to it that is emotional, but it is something far deeper and far more profound than that. And because it is so central to our life as Christians, it's helpful to take some time this morning to consider it alone. Read with me, if you will. We're going to look at verse 8. I'm actually going to, again, read this section 7 through 11. Uh, we're going to only look at verse 8, but read with me, if you will, First Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. It says, The end of all things is near. 
Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober for the purpose of prayer. Above all things, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. As Peter reminds us in verse 8, and is at the very heart of this verse, is that love is at the heart of spiritual life and the community of God's people. It is through that love that we bear witness to the world and the reality of the gospel. So as I said, we're going to look simply at verse 8, and we're going to look at it in two general basic parts. Num, the, first, the primacy of love and the practice of love. The primacy of love and the practice of love. Let's look at the first of these, at the first part of verse 8. The primacy of love. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. And again, by this statement, above all, Peter is pointing out to the greatest spiritual and ethical fruit of understanding the imminence of the return of Christ, the end of the age, the end of all things present. And it is to understand what it means to love one another. If we wonder what does it look like or what should be provoked in us, in understanding that all things are coming to an end and we as the people of God will corporately be gathered to Christ, what is that to look like? What is that to produce in us? And Peter says it is to produce in us love, love. One has rightly said that love is a central and all-encompassing concept of the Christian faith. And it is essential to every part of our life. If there is no love among the people of God, there is no evidence of spiritual life among us. There is no witness to the world of what we actually have received in Christ. Let's look at this in just a few parts. Just as preliminary or as part of or as the background and the context in which Peter makes this statement. And the first is this, that love is the very essence of God. It is of the very essence of God. You're familiar with 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. God is love. God is more than love. God's attributes or God himself is not a, a, an addition or a summary of a bunch of different parts. It's like you throw in a little bit of holiness. You throw in a little bit of justice. You throw in a little bit of wrath and a little bit of grace. And if you throw all those together, then you have what we call God and the God of Scripture. God isn't like that. A big fancy theological word, although it's not so big, is to speak of the simplicity of God. Which means to say that God isn't broken up into a complex of part. He simply is holy. He simply is God. And the way that he manifests his holiness and his perfections is through wrath, through justice, through grace, through the other things as he reacts to us. But as an essential part of his nature is the statement by John that God is love. God is love. It is of the very essence of his being. If you removed from God the fullness of his love, then you would no longer have God. You would have an evil tyrant that uses, rules the universe. 
But God is love. God is love by his very nature. And love is at the very heart of God's design in creating man in his image. So essential is love to God's both creation and to God's expectation of his image bearers that Jesus could say the summary of the law is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. In that, the whole law and the prophets hang. In that, the whole law and the prophets consist. It is to say then that the very design of God in creation and creating us as his image bearers and how he relates to us and how we are to relate to him is summarized in this concise statement or this one word to love. To love God and to love one another. And the order of the commands is crucial. Love for God is evidenced by love for neighbor. In fact, it is impossible to truly love God if you do not love others. It's impossible to truly love God if you do not love others. John says this. Don't turn there. First John. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So to bear... The testimony that we love God and yet not have that love reflected in our love towards fellow men, but Christians in particular, is a denial of our claim. Love is then the very essence of God's nature. It's the very heart of his design in creating man and how we are to relate to him. It's at the very heart of God's relationship to the world. The world is full of testimony of God's gracious and generous and loving Nature and acts of benevolence towards his creatures. We can see testimonies of this in the mere fact of his goodness in creation, that there is a certain kind of abundance to this world. The ways that God provides for us, the ways that God has given us a world in which we may flourish, in which we may know the fullness of his blessing and all the riches of his creation, is a reflection of his love. It is a reflection of his goodness. It is a reflection of his kindness, all of those related to the idea of God's love. It is part of his eternal attributes that Paul says we are to recognize in the created world in Romans 1. That God is good. That God is a God full of love and abounding in goodness and love. It's evident second and most significantly and most poignantly this love of God for the world and what he has done to redeem it. And what he has done to redeem it. That most known and precious and profound verses in all of scriptures, John 3.16, For God so loved the world... That he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That giving of the son was not as a moral example. It was not as merely an idea of sacrifice. It was a love that was a redeeming love and was a saving love. John will describe it later in his epistle in 1 John 4 as a love that is demonstrated in that he gave Christ to be a propitiation for our sins. That is to satisfy all that his righteousness requires of man for us. To satisfy the law in its positive aspects of its requirement of obedience and to satisfy the law in its negative aspects of just recompense for those who sin. Jesus did them both. 
In his perfect obedience, he fulfilled the law of God and all of its righteous commands to love the Lord to God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. In his death, he satisfied the law and all of its just consequences of condemnation on those who are guilty of sin. And in doing so, God demonstrated his love to the world, his love to the world, his love for humanity, his love for his image bearers. His love that would call rebels into fellowship with himself. All of this is gloriously displayed in Christ. And at the center of it is God's love for the world and God's love for humanity in general. And so this love is not merely a sentimental love that God reflects, that is his own nature, nor is it sentimental. It's a love shaped by holiness. It's a love shaped by by holiness. Holiness marks the form and the objective of this love. It's the shape of this love. It is a love that finds as its greatest end and beauty the holiness and the perfection of God. To say that God is love is also another way to say God is holy. God is holy. To say that God loves holiness is to say that God then hates everything that threatens, mars, or distorts this love into something that is unholy. To say that God is love then is as well to say that God hates sin. Because God loves what is good and the highest good is God himself. God could love nothing greater than himself for nothing exists greater than God. And so to say that God is love is to say that God loves everything that his holy and pure and infinitely glorious nature is and reflects. It is a holy love. It is a love that does not minimize sin's hoardness but maximizes it. And that's where the, the wrong turn takes sometimes as we think about God's love. And this will be reflected in Peter's own command to us is it's not a love that winks at sin. It is not a love that minimizes sin. It is not a love like the big grandfather in the sky who's just you know, happy of whatever kind of recognition that his image bearers might give him. It is a love that holds holiness to such a high degree, an unbreakable degree, that in order to manifest and to extend this love to others, it could require nothing less than the gruesome atoning death of his son to make those on whom he set his love holy, to make them holy. So God is by nature a loving God. God is by nature a redeeming God out of that love. God's relationship to us is based on his love for the world, but it is a holy love that will deal with sin. Ultimately in Christ and in eternal judgment, as Peter said earlier, that he is the judge of the living and dead for those who reject him. So love then, because it is so essential to the nature of God and because it is so essential to who we are both as humanity and particularly as the redeemed, is also a necessary evidence of life. What it means to share in the life of God is to love, to be engrafted into this life through Christ by the Holy Spirit that unites us to him, there indwells us, who produces the fruit of love. At the very heart and the core of that is that we are to love one another. That's what it is at the very center of what it means to be a Christian. 
Listen to the way that Jesus said it. Jesus said it this way. He said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34 through 35. Later, he says this. Just as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. In his prayer to the Father in John 17, he says this. O righteous Father, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. To have Christ in you, to have as the people of God Christ in us is to have his love and the love of the Father for him in us. It is to participate in that love that has eternally existed between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, as the incarnate Son, the love at which you had for me as my eternal Father, as the one with whom I've shared glory before the foundation of the world is the love that is extended to those you have given to me. It's a Trinitarian love that we participate in as sons and daughters in Christ. And therefore, it is that kind of love, that kind of redeeming love, that kind of eternal love, that kind of electing love that is to be reflected in the people of God. And it's a necessary evidence of life. The one who loves His brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. In 1 John 3.14 he says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. He later says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. So the point is this. That the love that he calls us to here, the love that should mark the life of the church, is not an add-on. It's not merely something that we decide to do to be extra spiritual. It is at the very heart of what it means to know Christ. It is the very heart of our witness. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if we love one another. The very evidence of having passed out of death into life is that there is a love for the brethren. If you do not have, conversely, a specific love for Christians, a kind of fellowship and a binding reality in your relationship to Christians that is different and distinct in your relationship to the world, then there is no evidence that you've passed out of death into life. If being with God's corporate people or being with God's people corporately does not produce in you a kind of contented satisfaction relationally a kind of identity and connection that you cannot have with your unbelieving neighbor and your unbelieving co-worker and your unbelieving friend, then there is no evidence that one has passed out of death into life. There is a distinction in the love that believers have for one another. A distinction. And it is at the very heart of what it means to be born again. Paul put it this way. Now as to love for the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. To love one another. So at the very heart of spiritual life is to love God and to have a love for the brethren. 
And as I said, is at the center of our Christian witness and unity. And this is what Paul calls us to here in verse 8. Above all, above all, why? Because love is at the very nature of God, is of the very nature of God. Love is at the very heart of redemption. Love is the very evidence of the life that we share in Christ. If there is no love for the brethren, then there is no life. It's that simple. There is no unique love for the brethren. But where there is life, what should be manifest us, among us is love. It's not merely a, a wishy-washy feeling. It is a command of God. It's a command of God. In other words, to not love, while it is something that the Spirit of God in regeneration naturally instills in His own people, it is also a command of God. It is a command of God that within a genuine believer resonates with power and depth and authority. But it is a command of God. You don't have the choice and we don't have the choice of whether or not we will love one another. To not love one another is to disobey God's word. As a matter of fact, again, in 1 John, he puts it this way. He says, And this is the commandment that we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So love is not merely a feeling of regeneration. It's not merely a sentiment of being a Christian. It is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian and it is at the very center of God's command to his people that we love one another. And here he says it's at the center of our Christian unity and witness. So let's look at this then a little more closely. He says, Above all then keep fervent in your love for one another above all things as the primacy of your life as the prime reality as the central reality of your corporate gathering of your life together as the people of God love one another as a matter of fact he says that in verse 22 already since you have an verse chapter 1 since you have an obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren fervently love one another from the heart In chapter 2, he had said, Honor all people, verse 17. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And here he takes it to its climactic level. And he says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Keep fervent in your love for one another. And this is particularly important, not only for every believer, but it would have hit them with this kind of protecting force. These are those who were suffering. They were under persecution. They were finding, in some cases, a temptation to be influenced more by the culture and the world than obedience to Christ. And he says, a way that we confront that is to be fervent in our love for one another. It's what keeps us unified. Paul says it is the perfect bond of unity in Colossians 3.14. It's necessary to maintain the unity because we are members of one another. Because as we'll take in the table this morning, we are the body of Christ. It's necessary. A lack of love is like an autoimmune disease that destroys the body within, attacking itself. Love is like a healthy immune system that's able to ward off the threat of sin that seeks to divide and destroy the unity and the health and the witness of God's people. If we don't have love, then we, as the people of God, will self-destruct from within. 
It's like a spiritual AIDS, if you will, that will kill the people of God and kill our witness and kill our joy and kill our usefulness to the king. So he says in Galatians 5, verse 15, If you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And if you walk by the Spirit, the chief fruit of that, in verse 22, is love. That you love one another. So this is a warning, this is a guard against letting anything among our fellowship anything among the people of God that would divide and harm our unity. The term that he uses here is agape. Is agape. Now, I just want to make a brief comment here. Uh, The term agape has become used or thought of almost exclusively as a Christian word. Almost exclusively as a Christian word. As a representative, uh, representation of the kind of love that we are to have as Christians. And sometimes the term itself is treated as if it has an, an uh, inherently heavenly origin. As if God somehow by the Holy Spirit in writing scripture dropped it out of heaven to be used for the new covenant people of God. And that's understandable at one level because it is the most common term to refer to God's love for the world and the love that we are to have for one another as his people. There's nothing particularly divine, holy, or theological, however, about the word itself. And I just want to dispel that. There's nothing particularly theological or divine about the word agape itself. As a matter of fact, that term is used in scripture to speak of evil desires, of wicked things. The Pharisees in Luke eleven forty three, Jesus says to them, You love, agape in verb form, the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. There's nothing holy about that kind of love. Jesus said in John twelve forty three, they loved, again our word, the glory of men rather than the glory of God. In Luke sixteen forty three, it's the kind of love that can be attached to temporal and earthly things. No one can serve two masters. He will love one and hate the other. So it's just as possible to use agape toward God as it is towards the world. In 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas had a sinful love, agape, the verb, having loved this present age, has gone to Thessalonica, and so on. The point is that there's nothing magical about the word agape itself. What gives it its content, what gives it its weight, what gives it its significance in the life of the church is the way that it is used. It is the context. And in that sense, it is a uniquely Christian word to describe the kind of love that we have for one another. It's the term chosen by God the Holy Spirit as almost the exclusive term to speak of God's love for his own and the love that his own have for him and for one another. So it is a tremendously significant and profound love that he is calling us to hear. But its theological significance is not because of the term, but it is because of the way that God demonstrated that kind of love to us and the kind of love that he calls us to. So what is its significance here? What is its significance here? Well, it is the love, as is already mentioned, of redemption. It's the kind of love that God showed when he gave his only begotten son. It is the kind of love that is a sanctifying and a purifying love 
that he calls us to here. It's a kind of love that is at the very center of the gospel. And that's important to understand because that's what we're to reflect to one another. So how did God show this love to us? He showed it in this way, in the words of Paul. For why we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. It is a love that was expressed to rebels. It was a love that had redemption as its end. It was a love that welled up completely within the nature of God himself and was not dependent on the loveliness of the object. It was a love that made holy. And it's the kind of love here that we are to express to one another. It is an eternal, merciful, forgiving, binding, persevering, unbreakable love of God for us in Christ. And it's that kind of love that we possess and that we are to demonstrate to others. It's a love that can't be broken. It's a love that cannot be broken. And so when Jesus says, love one another, even as I have loved you, by all this, all men will know that you are my disciples. It is that kind of love that he's calling us to. That kind of redeeming love. That kind of self-sacrificing love. That kind of love that is unbreakable, that is persevering. That kind of love that will never let go. That kind of love that is diligent in its pursuit of the good of the object on which it is expressed. That's the kind of love. It's the kind of love that Paul said that we will never be separated from. Even in the greatest adversity, even in the greatest persecution, he says nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when he says love the brethren, that's the love he's calling us to. And it's only by knowing, why is it important to establish that up front? Because this kind of love that he calls us to, again, is not merely sort of a sentimental feel good about one another. It is a love that has to it a kind of depth that cannot be broken. A kind of reality that cannot be experienced outside of the church. And with other Christians. It has a, it's a love that is to be shaped and motivated by nothing less than the death of Christ for us on the cross. As the redeemed people of God. It's that kind of love that pulsates and animates God's children. And so it's only by knowing and comprehending the love of God for us in Christ. That we can know and experience and express this kind of love to one another. Practically speaking, then, it's difficult to have a humble heart of love toward another's sin against us until we have grasped and felt within the grievousness of our own sin against God. We can't persevere in this kind of love that overcomes laziness and overcomes our self-will until we understand the degree of the love that has been expressed to us by God. And so he says, fervently love one another above all things. We are to fervently love one another. And this idea of fervency means that it is not a convenient love. It's not a love that we put barriers around. This fervency means that it is a sincere love. It is a love that is eager to express itself to others. This idea of fervent, there's an intensified use of this word that's speaks of Christ's fervent prayer to the Father as he sweat drops of blood in the garden. 
It is a fervent love. One said that Christian love is not an easy sentimental reaction. It demands everything an individual possesses of mental and spiritual energy. It means loving the unlovely and the unlovable. It means loving in spite of insult and injury. And it means when love is not loving when love is not returned. To say it is a fervent love we are to have then is to say it's a love that's not forced. Even though at times it requires we battle our flesh and the selfish tendency not to follow through on the command. It's a love that's thankful for the opportunity to be expressed. It's a love that's thankful and eager for the opportunity to obey Christ. But what does it look like? Well, let's look at the second half. So it is the primacy. Love is the prime, prime indicator of spiritual life within us. It is a necessary fruit of the gospel, and it is the central binding reality of God's people as the people of God in the body of Christ. How does he apply it here, the practice of love? He says this, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Why does he say this? Love covers a multitude of sin because... That gives the reason for his command. The cause for that command to love one another fervently is because love covers a multitude of sins. That is to say that love is necessary in a fallen world. It's necessary in a fallen world. This is an incredibly honest and hopeful statement. It's honest because it addresses the reality of our relationships in life together this side of heaven. Though we are the redeemed people of God, though we have the Holy Spirit of God, we yet have the principle of sin remaining in us. We all know that who are Christians. We have within us sin that always wants to rise up and tempt us and seeks to corrupt our unity and our fellowship. The reality is that you cannot come to church at Newtown Bible. You cannot go to church down the street. You cannot go to church in another state. You cannot go to church in another country and not be smack dab confronted with others' sin against you or your sin against others. If you are among the people of God, you will be sinned against at some point and in some manner. And if you are among the people of God as among anywhere, you will sin against somebody else eventually. You will act treacherously in some way in that relationship that is not being obedient to Christ's command to love. It is inevitable. You cannot find a perfect church. You will be sinned against and you will sin against someone else. And it is that sin in relationships that is a primary tool of Satan as our adversary to break the unity of God's people. Where there is little love, where there is a loveless fellowship, then sin will easily have an environment and fertile soil in which to destroy the unity of God's people and wreck the witness of Christ's name in them. So Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2 in the issue of forgiveness that we'll consider in just a minute. He says this, that they are to forgive, they are to express love to a sinning brother. He says this in verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. What is the chief way that Satan wants to work among our body and the body of believers is to work discord, unforgiveness, Bitterness, gossip, slander, maligning. That's how he works. 
And the antidote to that is to be those who walk in love. And it's inevitable that you're going to have an opportunity to express this in some way. And so he's incredibly honest here about the reality that love is necessary because sin is a reality. It's also very hopeful. It's hopeful because it reminds us that the greater reality, the reality greater than the fact that we will be sinned against and that we will sin against others, is the work of the Spirit that overcomes what Satan intends to destroy, the Spirit works to preserve. And so we preserve this unity of the Spirit when we walk in love. What Satan would seek to destroy, the joyful communion and fellowships of the saints, what our own flesh would be tempted to give into with anger and bitterness and patience and vindictiveness and unforgiveness, love overcomes. Every sin has inherent in it the potential to destroy fellowship and to break unity, to sever relationships in marriage, in the home, in the workplace, and in friendships. Every time that you are sinned against or that you sin against another person, it has within it the potential to destroy that relationship, to cause distance, to cause bitterness, to cause a lack of joyful harmony. Every sin has that potential. And whether it actually reaches that potential and whether in that potential the influence of our adversary has the greater weight on our heart is whether we choose to walk in self-will. That is what Paul or Peter calls us to here, to walk in love. So he says it's necessary, the implication being because we are sinners and because we will sin and be sinned against, then to keep fervent in our love for one another above all things because it is that love that will cover a multitude of sins. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by to say then that love covers a multitude of sins? Well, as is often the case, it's easier to recognize first what it does not mean. What does it not mean? Well, it doesn't mean this. It's not a theological statement of the atonement. The idea of covering is associated with Christ's atoning work. Of course, he covers our sins. But that's not what Peter's addressing here. He's addressing personal conflicts. He's addressing dissension, the potential for dissension within the church. It doesn't mean as well, secondly, that if we show love to someone else, that our display of love or our obedience of love somehow covers our own sin, that it acts as a kind of atonement. Some people take it that way. That if we love, then that love, our expression of love, covers a multitude of our own sins. It doesn't mean that. First of all, that goes against everything that Peter has already said in all of the New Testament That Christ is the one who bore our sins in his body on the cross. There is no atonement for our sin other than Christ. He was the just who died for the unjust in order that he may bring us to God. In order that we may walk in righteousness. He's not talking about our expression of love somehow atones for our own sin. He's not making some kind of theological statement here. And it doesn't mean as well, thirdly, that we ignore sin in the body. God commands us to address sinning members. So to say that love covers a multitude of sin doesn't mean that when sin is addressed, somebody can accuse the other of being unloving. God commands us to address sin. 
He commands us to do that. If any one of you is caught in a trespass, Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, go and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells us that we are to address sin within the church. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, then you take it all the way out that could possi- uh, to its furthest end that could possibly end up in exclusion from the fellowship of God's people. In Titus 3.10, we're to reject a factious man who ignores warnings. In 1 Thessalonians 3, we're to let the brother who will not work go hungry so not to encourage his laziness. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul chastises the Corinthian church for their false sense of love that failed to deal with the sin of immorality. So he doesn't mean here that somehow there's some sentimental loving feeling that overlooks or ignores sin. That's not what he means. He can't mean that. Because God is far more concerned with the holiness of his church than he is with some false sense of unity that tolerates sin. So then what does he mean? What does he mean? Well, it's helpful to understand if we know that Peter is making usage here of Proverbs 10, chapter 12. Let me just read it for you. Proverbs 10, 12 says this. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. Now, Peter's using this statement somewhat loosely here, but it is reflecting that. And some even argue that this had just become a kind of proverbial statement attached from its original context. In either case, the use of Proverbs 10 reflects well the call here to love the kind of love that covers a multitude of sins. One commentator on the Old Testament in Proverbs 10 says this, and captures it well. Love cherishes the wrongdoer as a friend to be one, not as an enemy with whom to get even. That's the idea. That's the kind of love that he's calling for here. The idea is this then. Love does not allow an offense to take root in the heart, but seeks reconciliation and the preservation of fellowship and unity among the body. What is he calling for here? This. Love does not allow an offense to take root in the heart, but seeks reconciliation and the preservation of fellowship and unity among the body. In the words of one, it is the patient forbearance that nips in the bud wrong actions and attitudes. That if allowed to fester will attract retaliation, virulent animosity, and ultimately dissension and division. Love gives no room for that kind of spirit to take hold and to breed. One gives this wonderful illustration. Love takes the oxygen out of sin the way a blanket chokes air from the one caught on fire. Similarly, as long as oxygen is present, forest fires rage. But if we could take the air away, the blaze would settle down and great tracts of land would be saved. And the destruction of that fire the destruction of that sin, the destruction of that unforgiveness, the destruction of that potential break in a relationship is never allowed to fester and reach its fullest potential because love covers it. Love stops it in its track. Love starves that fire of the oxygen that it needs to keep burning. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now, there's several ways that Scripture speaks about this love. One It's the kind of humble attitude and disposition of patience and charity to one another. We'll talk about this later in connection with verse 11. 
But let me read to you parts of 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind, is not jealous, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's the kind of love that has an attitude toward one another that immediately absorbs an offense or a wrong against us and harbors no ill will or vengeance. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Somebody spoke to you in a way that was unkind. Somebody slighted you, somebody offended you in some way, this kind of love doesn't immediately seek vengeance, but drowns out that natural fleshly response of retaliation with a spirit that harbors no ill will or vengeance. It easily overlooks an offense of another, not taking them to heart, but drowning them out in a gracious attitude of goodwill. This is how Paul describes it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Redemption is the model of our love. Therefore, be imitators of God and as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also has loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. That is the kind of love that we are to have. And it's the kind of love that must permeate us as a community of God's people. It's also an attitude that exercises forgiveness. And this is really, really important. What kind of love covers a multitude of sin? Well, in the broad sense, it is the kind of love that doesn't take personal offense at every slight It is the kind of love that does not allow the root of bitterness to take a hold in the heart. It's the kind of love that is patient. It's the kind of love that believes and hopes all things. The best towards that person. It assumes the best motive rather than a wrong motive. It believes that even if there's immaturity, God's working in that life and will bring them to a place of greater understanding. It's that kind of love. But it also is the kind of love that has the attitude and exercise of forgiveness. And it's important here to recognize both sides of that. This comes up so often in counseling. And it's because it comes up so often in our own lives, and in our own marriages, in our own homes. That this forgiveness has two sides to it. It has an attitude that comes with it. And it has an execution, an act of obedience in which full reconciliation comes about. Let me just mention these two kinds of forgiveness or these two parts of forgiveness. First, the transaction of forgiveness. What does it mean when we then express a forgiving kind of love, a reconciling kind of love? It means this. It means that when we forgive those who have sinned against us and who have come to us acknowledging that sin that we have extended to them a full and complete reconciliation in that relationship such that reflects our reconciliation to God through Christ. But in order for this to happen, in order for there to be a full reconciliation, in order for there to be this kind of forgiveness, there needs to be confession of sin. There needs to be a confession of sin. And if we don't understand that on this part, 
in order for reconciliation to take place, then we go down and we cause all kinds of troubles because what we do is then we say, hey, I've just keep forgiving this person, never actually address sin. And so sin is just kind of given this environment to breed and to fester and to go find roots that can eventually cause division and bitterness. In order for there to be a complete reconciliation, when sin has reached the level of bringing a break in a relationship, not every sin does, but when it does reach that level, there needs then to be confession of sin. There needs to be a confession of sin. And this is going to have two sides here then in how we apply this. And it's a reflection of the gospel. In terms of the one who has sinned, there is a need when you are aware of your sin against another to first confess your sin to God and go to that person and confess sin. That's part of walking in love. Luke 18, the sinner beat his breast and he said, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. This attitude of confession continues throughout life. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David, though a believer, when he sinned, was cut off from fellowship with God and was under his fatherly discipline until he said, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Psalm 32. Proverbs 28 says, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The statement here is in the context of the covenant community of God. And it is this, the idea in Proverbs 28, the one who tries to hide his crimes and offenses and act as if nothing happened will be disciplined by God who is in full knowledge of the offense and will not let it go undressed, unaddressed. But the one who publicly acknowledges guilt will find leniency and compassion. And so if there's real sin that causes a break in the relationship or if there's real sin that has been brought to you and we just kind of go on and act as if nothing happened but yet we still hold within ourselves that offense that was committed against us, then that's not walking in the kind of love that he talks about here. That relationship can never be fully restored into its original joy and connection until there's been confession of sin. But if you've been sinned against and one comes to you, and this is true again in every relationship, especially marriage, among the community of God's people, then we are making commitments to that person who sinned against us. Three commitments in particular. If somebody comes to you and asks for forgiveness and says, I sinned against you, I did this. So let's say somebody's obedient, they've been convicted of their sin, they come to you, you might have some anger or whatever, but they come to you and they ask for forgiveness and you say, I forgive you. We have to realize that when we say that, we're making a commitment to that person before God. It's not a lighthearted thing to say that. We need to consider well what we're committing to. And I'm going to mention this only very briefly. If we say that we forgive someone, then we're making three commitments and to take them back is a matter of disobedience. And that's why forgiveness can't be based merely on feelings. It is a matter of obedient love to Christ. And that's very important to understand. Because we're committing when we forgive that person to never bring it up to them again unless it's, not, unless it's helpful to them. Unless it will serve some kind of edifying and beneficial purpose. 
We're committing that we will not bring that sin up to someone else unless it'll be helpful or benefit that person. That means if you say to your husband or spouse or friend, I forgive you, and then you go talk about that sin to someone else, obviously still bothered and angered by it, you are sinning at that point and not exercising the forgiveness that you promised to give that person. It means that when you're talking to someone else, you're going to cover over that sin because you've forgiven it. You're going to hide it from them. You're going to treat it as one that's no longer an issue between you and that person. But then there's a third commitment we're making, and this is even the hardest in many ways. We're committing not to dwell on that sin. That means that we say, I forgive you, but then later that sin comes to our mind again and we want to be offended all over again. That we are committing to that person that says, I will deal with that thought. I will cover over that sin. I will remember that that sin has been removed. It has been confessed. It is no longer a hindrance to our relationship. That sin. That I have forgiven you of that sin. That doesn't mean that we don't exercise wisdom if it's a deep trust that has been broken. But it is to say that I don't hold it against you any longer. I don't hold that against you as an act of ill will. That I can treat you as a reconciled brother or sister in Christ. And that's what we're committing to if we extend forgiveness. But sometimes somebody doesn't come to us. We've been offended and that person never sees. It never comes to us. They never see their own sin. What do we do then? What do we do then? Well, then there's the attitude of forgiveness. This particularly happens when we're sinned against by Unbelievers, but even within the church, there's a sin that brings a break in relationship. It causes disharmony in that relationship, whatever it might be. But the person doesn't recognize it. How do we then guard against bitterness and hatred? How do we have that fertile soil that's ready for Satan to come in and divide? Well, there's a few things. One, we need to go to that sinning brother or sister and point their sin out to them in hopes that they will be restored. Again, that's Matthew 18. If they don't, and the nature of that offense may mean that we go and we follow the process of church discipline and we gather others and we keep putting the pressure on until eventually they will acknowledge that sin and come to a place of repentance. There is also, if that doesn't happen, then we are to have an attitude towards that person that patiently bears with them. Even if they ultimately are excluded from the fellowship of the church. Our attitude to them should still be one of restoration and forgiveness. Which means we don't have any ill will towards them. And even though we've been sinned against, we still hope for God's mercy in their life. And we are ready at any point to receive them again in a reconciled relationship if they confess their sin. But until there is repentance, there cannot be a full reconciliation. Jesus mentions this in Mark 11, this kind of forgiveness. He says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will forgive you. In that case, he's saying in your heart, before God, forgive that person. Forgive them. And then your prayer will be accepted. The greatest illustration, we won't turn there, is what's known as the prodigal son. As long as the son had remained in his sin, as long as he rejected his father's honor and authority, he was cut off from family blessing. He was giving no provisions for living. He was excluded from any kind of family fellowship. 
And yet, when he came near to his home with a repentant heart, the father ran out to him, even into his own shame, to meet this son. What does that show? It shows, by implication there, that the father was waiting for the son to return and was ready to forgive him. So much so that when the son came, he didn't even get the words out, and already the father's love had been expressed to him in forgiveness. He said, that's the love of God towards us. That is the love, the attitude of forgiveness that we are to have towards others. Until the son repented, there could not be a full fellowship. There could not be a full enjoyment of that relationship. But at the first motion of repentance, there is this ready and eager willingness to forgive. That's the kind of love and forgiving love that covers a multitude of sins. And that's the kind of love that should mark us as a community of believers. It's the kind of love that we have received from God. Let me read this quote, and then we'll come into the Lord's table. This actually comes from an early church father named Clement. He was mentioned by Paul in Philippians 4.3. He wrote a letter, 1 Clement, and he says this in it. Let him who has love in Christ keep the commandments of Christ. This is from the first century. He, who can describe the bond of the love of God? What man is able to tell the excellence of its beauty as it ought to be told? The height to which love exalts is unspeakable. Love unites us to God. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love bears all things. Love is long-suffering in all things. There is nothing base, nothing arrogant in love. Love admits of no schisms. Love gives rise to no seditions. Love does all things in harmony. By love have all the elect of God been made perfect. Without love, nothing is well-pleasing to God. In love has the Lord taken us to himself. On account of the love he bore us, Jesus Christ our Lord gave his blood for us by the will of God, his flesh for our flesh, his soul for our souls. So when we come to the table now, And we acknowledge our faith in Christ. We acknowledge our redemption that we've received. We acknowledge that we are the community of God's people, His body. We are making a commitment in obedience to Christ to love one another, to be united and to pursue that kind of unifying and cementing love, to have that kind of forgiving love. So that means then, as you come to the table and as the men pass out the elements... If there are any unreconciled relationships, if there's any bitterness that you have in your heart towards someone else, if there's any attitude of unforgiveness, if there's anything that needs to be taken care of, now is the time to commit to the Lord afresh to deal with that relationship and be reconciled. If you've sinned against somebody that you need to seek forgiveness, you need to commit now in your heart to go to that person and confess your sin and ask for forgiveness. If you've been sinned against and you have bitterness, then you need to commit in your heart right now not to let that bitterness have a hold because of the love you've received in Christ and to go and try to reconcile with that brother or sister. When we come to the community, as the community of God's people to his table, these are the commitments that we're making. So let's pray and talk to the Lord as the men hand out the elements and then we'll take it together.